heart of where innovation, money, and power collide. In Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Checking San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, Russia's invasion gets more brazen and more bloody. A children's hospital and maternity ward, the latest target in the Ukrainian port town of Mariupol. This after a Ukrainian official says they're open to meeting Russia's demands for neutrality, but only if there's an immediate ceasefire. Plus, Bitcoin bounces back as President Biden signs an executive order on digital assets. We'll break down what's in that plan and what it means for the future of cryptocurrency. And Amazon soaring after hours. The company's board approves a 20 for 1 stock split. What it means later this hour. All of that, but first, buying the dip. Stocks rally despite looming fears about global inflation in part after a top Ukrainian foreign policy aide said President Zelensky is open to talking about Russia's demand for neutrality as long as it comes with an immediate ceasefire and withdrawal of troops. Our Ritika Gupta here to walk us through the day. Ritika, walk us through the day. Yes, Emily. Well, like you said, a big bounce back for U.S. equities off the back of that. Actually, the biggest rebound going back to June of 2020 and tech really leading the charge here. But many are questioning, is this just a dead cap bounce? Is this going to or is this going to be more of a sustained rally? Well, if you take a look at the bond market, could suggest the latter just in the fact that yields have been rising over, over the past four days. We actually sit on that 10-year at 1.95%, so actually close to the highs that we've seen this year. But really today, of course, the story was in the commodities market coming off those highs, WTI plunging some 12% in the session today and a lot of those energy stocks moving lower in sympathy. That brings me to my terminal chart today of the day here. So it's really comparing the weekly percent changes of energy stocks within the S&P 500 to their tech counterparts. And what you can see is we've had a string of where energy stocks have just outperformed tech. But many investors are concerned just about the speed of the moves and how energy's risen so fast that we actually have Ryan Grabrinsky in a note in his strategist note saying that the average energy stock is just 2% off the analyst 12-month target. So that in some sense could suggest a pullback, Emily. And then finally, I just want to talk about some breaking news that we just had in the past 20 minutes or so. This is regarding Amazon, of course, announcing that it is going to go ahead with a 20 to 1 stock split and the repurchasing of up to $10 billion worth of shares. I mean, all the big tech names seem to be doing those stock splits these days. Now, Amazon is joining the ranks. This is actually going to be the first one uh, going back to 1999. You can see the stock getting a nice pop there post-market. Emily. All right, Ritika, thank you for that roundup. Meantime, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken condemning the Kremlin's plan for humanitarian corridors leading to Russia as absurd today as he demanded that Ukrainians be allowed to safely flee these cities under attack. He spoke earlier in Washington. Our goal is to end the war, not to expand it, uh, including potentially expand it to, uh, to NATO territory. 
Uh, we want to make sure that it's not prolonged to the best of our ability. Uh, otherwise, it's going to turn even deadlier, involve more people, and uh, I think uh, potentially even uh, make things harder to resolve in Ukraine uh, itself. Bloomberg's Bill Ferry is joining us now from Washington and Bill, the invasion already getting bloodier and more brazen. And you have some new reporting on additional sanctions that the U.S. is considering. What's next? Right. As this conflict continues to grind on, we know that uh, Biden administration officials are considering uh, whether to sanction Rosatom. That's one of their premier uh, suppliers of uranium, not just to uh, to Western Europe, but also to the United States. It's a major energy company. It would be a uh, another big blow, but it would also be something that would have ripple effects here in the United States. Uh, Rosatom provides over 15 percent of the uranium used in U.S. nuclear power plants and uh, and something close to over 20 percent of the enriched uranium. So these are the kind of uh, things that uh, nuclear plants typically stockpile, but it would still force a lot of uh, a lot of efforts to find alternative sources of uranium for nuclear power plants, both in Europe and in the United States. Meantime, you've got this children's hospital and maternity ward being bombed, all of this putting additional pressure on the United States. What more can the United States do? Well, that bombing you mentioned is the latest sign of uh, increased use of unguided munitions by the uh, Russian forces uh, who are still, uh, have still not managed to capture any big cities um, but are continuing to press down and starting to surround places like Kyiv. Uh, the U.S. is, you know, continuing to try to work with NATO allies to get uh, air defense systems uh, and defensive weapons into Ukraine. Uh, there was some talk from Polish authorities about swapping their MiG fighters uh, or sending their MiG fighters to Germany for delivery to Ukraine. The U.S. has essentially ruled that out for the time being, saying it would only serve to escalate the conflict outside of Ukraine's borders, essentially bringing the rest of Europe into the war. How significant is Ukraine saying it's open to a diplomatic solution here? At the same time, they're saying they won't surrender a single inch of territory. And we're now almost two weeks into this war. And as you say, no major cities have been captured. Right. I mean, I think ultimately Russia still has the firepower and the numbers on their side, uh, although it just seems like things have definitely not gone uh, the way they probably expected it to. The Ukrainians have repeatedly said that they're open to talks, that they're open to uh, they're open to having a, a ceasefire, uh, the withdrawal of forces. It's really, I think, more on the Russian side. We have not seen it, the Russian interest in doing so. Uh, and there's uh, the big uncertainty is what would happen in these eastern areas that were controlled by separatists where Russian troops have been now, uh, whether that would ever return to Ukraine or not. That would be a key issue in those kind of talks. All right. Bill Ferries for us in Washington. Thank you for those updates. Meantime, Bitcoin jumping above 42,000, spurred by optimism about a U.S. overhaul of crypto regulation that Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has called historic. President Biden's executive order mandates government agencies to take a closer look at 
issues from developing a potential digital U.S. dollar to combating illicit finance. Our Ben Bain here now with the details. What does this executive order actually mean when you look at the fine print for the broader crypto industry, Ben? Well, looking at the price action today, I think you mentioned earlier the Bitcoin was up about 10% at one point. Um, I think the initial feedback is pretty positive from the crypto industry. Uh, you know, for the longest time, um, there's been this concern um, when you talk to, to to people in this at these various businesses that the U.S. was really gonna gonna come out swinging and and not take uh, a deliberate approach to regulating crypto assets. What the Biden administration has essentially done today is, is task the federal government and not just the SEC or some of the financial regulators with taking a pretty broad look at this asset class. Um, I think from the crypto industry's perspective, that's probably pretty good news. Uh, they've been complaining that the SEC and, and some of the other financial regulators um, are very much taking a heavy hand here, and, and they continue to talk about the way the government should be focused more on what they say are some of the positive aspects um, of cryptocurrencies. What we saw from the Biden administration is basically um, a look at how regulations might be coming, but also a call on places like the Commerce Department to look at things that can be done to ensure that the United States continues to be competitive in this area. So overall, from the crypto industry's perspective, and certainly looking at a 10% bounce in Bitcoin, certainly was pretty good news today for them. So let's talk about the reaction. And we have any details on what the crypto community is saying about this? And also, what about lawmakers? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was interesting to see here. Um, you saw uh, Republicans, uh, including uh, including some of the highest ranking members of, of the Senate Banking Committee, obviously, uh, you know, pretty key in any type of regulation that might be uh, coming down the pike here, uh, actually applauding what they saw from the Biden administration, which these days in Washington, uh, you know, isn't common at all. Um, so it was kind of this, you know, this moment where everyone said, uh, found something they kind of liked in this order. Um, at the same time, you could see a situation where uh, that could also be read as, as nothing in here that's basically saying uh, the crackdown is, is imminent. Uh, so uh, we're going to see over the next six months or so, uh, you know, whether any real action in terms of writing new regulations, any type of sweeping policy framework is actually put in place. And oh, by the way, that's going to take us right up into November. We're going to have midterm elections here in Washington. And, uh, you know, the whole political landscape in terms of writing new laws and, and rules is going to change quite a bit. Well, let's talk about that. Would you say what the White House has done here could be called a game changer for the industry? So, some are saying that. Um, certainly, uh, there, there are lots of responses out there today saying, you know, this is a really big deal. And, and if you think about it, this is definitely the highest uh, attention, level of attention that the U.S. government has given to cryptocurrencies. Uh, to have the President of the United States signing an executive order can be seen as essentially acknowledging that this asset class is here to stay. It's not a flash in the pan type of things as some in traditional finance might have, uh, you know, said it was going to be at one point. On the other hand, it really remains to be seen. This executive order calls for reports that could come as long as six months down the road. Um, at that point, it'll be up to the administration, various agencies, financial regulators to actually put in place any new rules. So like most things in Washington, you know, this could take months or years. And of course, there's going to be lots of lobbying from businesses and, and interests 
all across this issue to try to make things work out how they want it to. All right, Ben Bain for us there in Washington. Ben, thank you for your reporting on this. Coming up, keeping in touch with friends, family, employees under siege in Ukraine. How one company is trying to keep communication lines open to make sure humanitarian aid gets to where it needs to go. That's next. This is Bloomberg. Thousands are trapped in towns surrounding Kyiv as Russian forces continue to encroach on the capital. They're running out of food and other essential items as they wait days upon days for a safe exit. Take a listen. And as more people attempt to leave Ukraine or find shelter within the country, it is of the essence to keep communication channels open so humanitarian aid can get to those who need it most. MessageBird is helping keep businesses connected across Ukraine and is now being used to coordinate and meet a broad range of needs from getting SIM cards to people along with supplies like medicine, blankets, and even transportation from place to place. Founder and CEO Robert Viss with me now for more on how his company is doing all of this work. Now, as I understand it, Robert, you work with all of the major social channels, WhatsApp, Instagram, Telegram. What kinds of communications are you seeing between businesses, between customers and businesses in Ukraine specifically? Hi, Emily, and thank you for having me um, on the show. Um, look, before MessageBird was being used primarily for omnichannel B2B communications, um, today we're seeing a lot of NGOs, communities um, uh, using us for all sorts of help. Um, as you said, it can be simple things from organizing, coordinating medicines, uh, uh, blankets, transportation. Um, we're just trying to provide our services to as many businesses as possible at the moment to, to help out. 
So what does that mean? How are you supporting these businesses who have these flood, this flood of requests at this time? Well, it's several different ways. Um, I mean, one, we're just, I mean, as a company, we provide uh, customer service tooling, so different ways for, for people to coordinate on top of our platform. So we're obviously providing that for free now to, 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 to those companies' uh, businesses. But this isn't just businesses, to be honest. It's um, just as much just people trying to help out. I mean, if you think about it, it's about 2 million refugees have now come into Europe. Um, so a lot of people are trying to help out in different ways and we're trying to, to, to coordinate as quickly as possible. Um, at the same time, we, we launched our own fund um, uh, to help out. So our employees are helping out. Um, I'm trying to organize other tech founders to come together and, and all of us use our uh, knowledge companies um, um, to to try to lend a hand in this terrible situation. So this $10 million NGO fund that you mentioned, what's your hope about how this will help? Look, the fund is broader. Um, um, uh, we're looking to, the, to, to deploy the capital in the next two years. Um, but, you know, right now it's needed as much as ever. Um, so we're trying to do anything we can um, uh, um, for, for the for the community, I think more broadly um, than the money, what we're really trying to do is just stand up. I think it's important for CEOs, founders to speak up. Um, I think the um, technology sector is uniquely positioned to help out. Um, we've all built amazing companies that we can do stuff with. Um, you know, I'm working together with, for example, one of the in the Netherlands, the founder of Bunk, which is an online bank. Um, uh, he's doing amazing work trying to get refugees now uh, bank accounts so so that we can coordinate money, something simple, because obviously their bank accounts in Ukraine don't uh, actually work anymore. Or the founder of Picnic, which is an online supermarket um, who has you know all sorts of supply chain and logistics to, to to coordinate funds. I think it's initiatives like that that where we're really focused um, uh, to try to help out. Well, speaking of standing standing up, this clampdown that we've seen on services across Russia. We've seen a number of companies take a stand. Do you have any exposure in Russia? Are you cutting off any of your services to Russian businesses and users? Yeah, we have um, uh, pretty much immediately. Uh, um, look, I'll be honest, it's it's 4% of our revenues. So it's, it's you know, it's uh, uh, we're a $500 million company. It's significant, but it's not um, it's, it's not going to kill our, our, kill our business. Um, but I think anything that we can do um, globally to to say no um, and to stand for peace, I think, is important. Um, obviously, I would say that the Russian people inside the country have absolutely nothing to do with this. Um, so it's sad for them, too. Um, at the same time, it's, I guess, the only peaceful protest that we can do is by stopping services to uh, to to the Russian community. Right now, I know you're joining us from Amsterdam. You do have a team in Ukraine, how big is that team? How are they doing? What is the situation there and how are you helping them? We didn't have a very big team in Ukraine. Um, luckily, all of our employees are outside of the country. Um, uh, we were able to get them out pretty quickly, um, but they still have family there. Um, so, uh, uh, so far, as far as I know, everybody is is doing okay considering the circumstances, um, but, uh, it's 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 horrifying. I mean, we have families where, like, you literally hear the air alarms go off. Um, I don't know how you call it in English, but the, the and you know, it's just uh, it's it's 2022, and we're having a war at the borders of Europe. It's crazy. Air sirens, common sound.
now across the country. All right, founder and CEO of MessageBurb, Robert Viss. Thank you for joining us and sharing the work that you're doing there. Coming up, Amazon soaring in late trading after the company says the board approved a 20 for one stock split. Details on that next. This is Bloomberg. Amazon splits its stock, sending shares soaring. This as the e-commerce giant announced it will stop sending products to Russia and cut off Prime Video to Russian customers. I want to bring in Bloomberg's Brad Stone for more on this. Brad, I want to start with the stock splits here. Obviously, we just saw Alphabet do something like this earlier this year. Unlike Amazon, though, to do a stock split, why are they doing this and what does it mean? Well, it's interesting. Uh, Jeff Bezos, for 15 years, seemed to really resist this kind of financial engineering. It shouldn't mean anything, right? One share of Amazon stock at 3,000 is equal to 20 shares at 150. But in practice, um, a lower stock price makes the stock more attractive to retail investors and also employees. You know, you've got a million warehouse workers who have an option of of uh, including equity in their compensation. And this, instead of a fractional share, they get a whole share. So there are lots of reasons to do it. And the, and the fact that the stock is down by 8% over the last 12 months, and the fact that investors are responding favorably, they did today and to Google's announcement last month, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's evidence for why Andy Jassy maybe wants to rethink some of that orthodoxy at Amazon. Right, improving that accessibility, at least psychologically. I also want to ask you about Amazon's moves in Russia, stopping sending products to Russia, cutting off Prime Video. How significant is this for Amazon? How big a business do, do they have there? And, and who will this really impact? Yeah, I mean, not to call it a nothing burger, but to put it in perspective, no data centers in the country, no offices in the country. There's no such thing as Amazon.ru. If you're an Amazon customer in Russia, you're probably ordering from the website in Germany and, and, and products are getting shipped to you from the fulfillment centers in Poland. So, I, you know, it's limited. Amazon's taking a stand here like a lot of other companies. And to, to the extent that it's impacting Amazon customers, it's probably upper middle class Russian consumers who were who were using the foreign Amazon website. OK, now, third story, big Amazon story today, Amazon being accused of lying to Congress about how they use third party data and have now been referred to the Department of Justice. What does this mean? It, it was sort of an open secret that Amazon, which is very decentralized, you had employees who were breaking, basically breaking Amazon policy and you know, using internal data tools to promote private label Amazon products. And when Bezos and, and some other Amazon executives were hauled in front of the congressional subcommittee investigating antitrust, they didn't, wouldn't really own up to it. You know, Amazon's so secretive. They talked around it. They talked about studying the issue. They were being very Amazon-like. And then they've never released any subsequent reports. So, you know, the charge here, you know, is that they, they lied. 
they clearly weren't upfront with what was happening, you know, with the employees who were kind of sticking their hands in the data cookie jar. And now congressional investigators want some accountability for that. All right. Well, we'll be following that story. Again, Amazon shares way up after hours on the back of that stock split announcement are Brad Stone, who, of course, wrote a couple of books on Amazon. Brad, thank you. Coming up, GM names founder of Cruise, Kyle Vogt, the CEO of its self-driving car company that it acquired a few years ago. How close are we to autonomous cars on the roads? He'll join us next. This is Bloomberg. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Cruise, the autonomous vehicle company majority owned by General Motors, named co-founder Kyle Vogt its full-time CEO. He's back in the top spot since Dan Ammon left Cruise back in December after disagreements with GM CEO Mary Barra. Kyle with us now for his first interview since taking back the helm. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us. So in light of Dan's departure and, of course, your very long history with this company, what is your vision and is there anything that you plan to do differently? Well, thanks for having me, Emily. Fortunately, you know, our vision remains unchanged. We're still working on bringing driverless cars uh, to deployment at scale. And it's been a really exciting year for, year for us. Just in the last few months, we did our first driverless rides on a on public roads in a major U.S. city. It's a first for any company. We've got really ambitious plans to scale from here uh, to be in you know more locations, more cities, and make a really great product for people. And given the context of Dan's departure, how would you say? How would you describe your relationship with Mary Barra and whether you know you both are on the same page? Well, the GM leadership team, including Mary, uh, have been really supportive, and we share this vision. Um, you know, it's obvious if you look at the status quo, we're not in a great place when it comes to car accidents in the U.S. And, um, you know, basically transitioning to an electric vehicle fleet across um, across both personally owned vehicles and rideshare. And we all believe that uh, uh, autonomous rideshare is the way to get there and a way to get there really quickly. And it's also a really big business opportunity uh, for a company like GM or really any major company uh, who's looking to get into the transportation space. Talk to us about Cruise Origin, how production is going, and is there any sense of when we'll see Origin on U.S. roads? Yeah, the Cruise Origin is an amazing vehicle. It's it's meant for rideshare. So you sit in it, you've got tons of leg room, the seats face each other, lots of cabin space. And so it's optimal for things like shared rides where you might be in there with another person, but we can really drive the cost down when you do those kind of rides. So it's an awesome vehicle. Um, we're doing testing with prototypes right now um, on closed courses. And uh, early next year, I think you may start to see the first production vehicles roll off the line and hopefully go into deployment. 
Why, in your view, is Cruise's technology better than what Waymo has to offer, or Tesla, or Zooks? You know, it's really hard to compare different AV companies, and I think uh, the answer is just, you know, when you can pull out your phone and use one of these products, first of all, we'll know uh, who's ahead in terms of deployment, but then um, also the thing is right now, you can't really compare them side by side. And I do think when you experience this technology, if it's anything like what our first users have seen, they're blown away. It feels like magic. They want to use it again and again. And uh, we intend to differentiate both on uh, the product experience, creating a really great uh, experience that's that's potentially better than our com the competitors, but m much better than the status quo uh, using rideshare services. And I think that'll be really compelling. I think people are going to like it. Now, as I understand it, Cruise has at least five permits from the DMV and the CPUC. You can transport passengers without a driver behind the wheel, but you can't charge a fare, or you can transport passengers and charge a fare, but you need to have a safety driver. Are the regulations just too complicated right now to make a lot of progress? We did a good job on winding the California permit process right there, but you know we're one <laughs> permit away from being able to charge fares and do commercial operation. But as of today, we have people using the app, using the service. Um, you know, so we're we're getting a sense for what those customers are going to do and what they like. Um, and I think while today we're we're kind of hung up on this permitting process, that's a very ephemeral problem and going to go away. We're going to work with the regulators and get through these things and. Uh, then you're just going to see, you know, this this uh, product start to appear in more places and starts to be something that people use, you know, in their daily lives and just going to become normal. I think the discussion about permitting is important today since it's the first time uh, any company has tried to go through this and get permits from California regulators. But uh, I think that's going to be behind us pretty soon. What's the next big market for Cruise after the United States? Uh, well, we'll see. I think the the priority for us is, <laughs> you know, look, you know, even in San Francisco, a tech-centric city. People have never seen a car driving around without anyone behind the wheel. You know, there's people on the sidewalk that look at these vehicles and they're like, they're taking pictures, they're looking at them, they're 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 excited. I think about the future, but it's also you know a little bit unusual. And so I think for us, we really want to make sure we nail this in San Francisco, not only uh, in a way that works for the city, but works for riders and it's really compelling and they want to come back again and again. And then we're really going to put uh, a lot of ammo into this and try to scale it out in a lot of places really quickly. But our goal is to make it work really well and make it work really well here in San Francisco first. Any updates on Dubai? The World Expo in Dubai wraps at the end of the month. And one of the big themes is mobility. Yeah, uh, Dubai has been, uh, or the RTA in Dubai has been a great partner. And we're still on track for deployment there. And it's a great opportunity to introduce, um, you know, the future of, of transportation to, you know, a city and government that's really excited about doing that. Uh, so we can't wait. So look, I think the big question regular consumers have is when will self-driving cars, when will self-driving cruises, for example, be on the road and I can take advantage of it? You know, how far out is that more mainstream reality? How many years? Um, well, we're starting small. I think the important thing is to get this working, make sure everyone is uh, responding well to it and the product itself meets expectations. But right now, uh, if you live in San Francisco, you can go to getcruise.com and jump on the wait list. We've already done hundreds of rides with members of the public. And these AVs, actually dozens of them, are out every single night now carrying passengers around San Francisco. So it's here. It's not uh, you know, universally distributed or equally distributed, but it's here in small bits and pieces. And I think it's going to 
uh, surprise people how quickly that becomes generally available and uh, that many people who live or work in San Francisco get a chance to use it. All right. Calvo, CEO of Cruise once again, and also, of course, the co-founder. Thanks for bringing your vision to us, Kyle. Coming up, President Biden and crypto, the fine print in his executive order and what it means for the broader industry next. This is Bloomberg. President Biden's executive order on crypto, which sent Bitcoin bouncing right back up. I want to get into it all with our crypto contributor, Shanali Basik. Shanali, this could be kind of a big deal. Yeah, it could be a big deal. And if you see Bitcoin prices, certainly the market thinks it is. If you take a look, you have a more than 9% jump in Bitcoin over the last 24 hours. It is still down on the seven-day period, but a significant lift here, more than the other assets. If you flip up the board and take a look at Ethereum, for example, also getting a lift about 6% or so. But the one interesting thing to me is while those assets have gotten a lift tether and stable coins more largely have not seen seen as much of a lift are pretty stable on the day, but again, stable on the week as well. So what are the safe havens here? Let's get someone else's take here. We're going to bring in Marty Chavez on this. He is the vice chairman at Sixth Street Partners, really a pioneer when it comes to technology and money. Marty, thank you so much for joining us. There's a lot of criticism about the executive order that came out of the White House. On one hand, it's been hailed as a watershed moment, but on the other hand, it has also been criticized as short on details. What's your take? Sonali, we've talked about this topic before. I've been saying for a long time, the best thing that could possibly happen to digital regulation, uh, digital assets is the appropriate amount of regulation. Sure, the executive order did not give us a lot of detail. It mostly directed a variety of organizations in the government to do more work and do more study, and that's great. There is, um, we expect, a Treasury paper forthcoming later this year that's going to have a lot more detail. Uh, But I would say uh, that at the root of my concerns, and you and I have talked about this before, are really the stable coins. Right, the stable coins are a form of currency peg, and currency pegs have not been successful. They work right up until the moment that they don't work, and there's certainly uh, not a lot of detail. I don't, I'm not sure there's any in the executive order about stable coins, and to my mind, uh, the appropriate regulation of stable coins, which I would see as a kind of narrow bank, mm-hmm. so we actually know what are the assets backing them and what are the mechanisms for those assets. I think that's going to be hugely important. And until we have that, I don't know how investable uh, the whole space of digital assets is from my perspective. Uh, but once we have a, a foundation for the stable coins, it looks like narrow banking and appropriate regulation. I think it's going to be a part of an immensely important 
long secular trend, well, the dematerialization of everything. Marty, what about what we're seeing here in terms of investment into things like the Ukraine Dow, the way that investors have really been able to mobilize and raise money at scale uh, when people have not been able to access currency in the traditional way? Well, first, that's not, let's just start by just acknowledging, uh, acknowledging the pure horror of what's going on in, in Ukraine, uh, and and the, the sympathy the sympathy isn't even the word for the suffering that's happening over there. And to the extent that cryptocurrency can partially mitigate some aspects of that suffering, I think it's huge. It does show you that it, that there, there's ways to move money internationally with cryptocurrency, which we've all known that are interesting that don't require intermediaries. Of course, it brings up all kinds of concerns about the enforceability of sanctions. And there's all kinds of discussions about Russian wallets and the exchanges. And um, that's complicated. Yeah, I'm really curious about what you think about that and the role that crypto plays here when there are sanctions and really lots of governments around the world trying to restrict the flow of capital. Is crypto so, going to fix or make that worse? So restricting the flow of capital sanctions, look, this is this is this is something that governments do. Uh, personally, um, to my mind, put like we have heard commentators say uh, the U.S. is not playing fair with the dollar. Well, um, I don't know that playing fair is really what the discussion is about when Russia unprovoked invaded invaded Ukraine. And so, cr cryptocurrencies do provide this mechanism. I think it's important as a matter of sovereignty to have the right amount of regulation. Um, I don't like using the term cryptocurrencies. I don't think they're currencies. I think they're digital assets. The currency is a different thing. And this is something else that I've been saying for a long time. Digitizing the US dollar in an appropriate way that respects identity, privacy, know your client, anti-money laundering, sanctions regimes, regimes that bolsters the Fed's tools for macroeconomic policy and the United States' tools for geopolitical policy, those are, that's hard. And getting that right is really important. Mm -hmm. But to me, it's not an option. You know, do we want to digitize the US dollar? That dematerialization journey has to continue. It's important for US leadership. It's important as a matter of innovation. And getting it right is extremely Marty. hard. To what yes. extent is it a, a question of national security? You have millions of people who are flocking to China's central bank digital currency as we speak. And I'm wondering if the U.S. doesn't catch up and do the same. To what extent does that start to shift global financial powers over to China? I worry about this a lot, Sonali. Uh, the, the dollar status as the global, global reserve asset is not written in stone. It has persisted for 100 years. Not that the historical pattern needs to repeat, but about every 100 years, there's a different global reserve asset. And, and I've been saying for a few years now, uh, digitizing the US dollar in an appropriate way it's not, is essential. It's not just another form factor, right? To me, that's like saying uh, a 
a starship and a bicycle are just two different forms of transportation. No big difference between the two, right? A digital dollar, potentially a programmable dollar, is a completely different thing than the inert paper dollar that we currently have. The only two forms of central bank money we have today are the notes and Fed funds in Fed master accounts. Introducing another form that is just like the dollar, but it's digital. We don't need the paper symbolizing it anymore. That's really important, but getting the details right, like the know your client, anti-money laundering, what are the right amounts? Can they be removed? Can you apply sanctions? If so, what's the process? Like designing all of this, it has to be thoughtful Marty. and it's really hard and it's essential. We have just about another minute, 30 seconds here. What about the investability of digital assets until we get to that regulatory point that you're talking about? Are you comfortable? Are your clients and rivals comfortable with getting into them? No, many, many clients and rivals are comfortable. Um, but when I am thinking about it from, from the 6th Street point of view, um, it's uh, we see the right amount of regulation as essential. I'll give you an analogy. Before airplanes were regulated and the safety of airplanes were regulated, you were taking your life into your hands every time you got on a commercial flight. And so having all the rules that we currently have about rebuilding the airplanes every so often, how they have to be maintained in the checklist and all, yes, it was expensive and cumbersome to comply with that, but it was game changing. It right. is the condition precedent for the industry to really grow and to be what it needs to be. And so I would say the executive order is a great step along this journey of creating the appropriate regulatory framework. Once we get that right and we get it right for stable coins, which are the underpinning right. of the current crypto ecosystem, that's going to be a golden age for Marty. digital assets. We're going to have to leave it there, but we want to have you back as we finally see those regulations. That's Marty Chavez, the part, vice chairman of Six Street Partners. Emily, back to you. Thank you, Shanali. Shanali Basak there. Coming up, Marketa jumping in post-market trading after beating estimates for their fourth quarter earnings results. But with Visa, MasterCard and PayPal all halting operations in Russia, what's the payments outlook ahead? Marquette CEO and founder Jason Gardner with us next. This is Bloomberg. Marketa just released its fourth quarter earnings, beating even the highest estimates and sending shares jumping in post-market trade. This as the payments company also announced a new partnership with Citigroup to help move commercial cards to mobile wallets more easily. But of course, there's big changes happening in the global payments landscape as Russia's war on Ukraine escalates. I want to talk about all of this with Marketa CEO and founder Jason Gardner. Jason, good to have you back with us. So of course, we've seen Visa. MasterCard, PayPal, halting their operations in Russia. What is Marketa's exposure in Russia? And do you have any plans to do the same? 
Good seeing you, Emily, and thank you for your continued interest in, in Marquetta. Uh, actually, Russia is not on our roadmap, has never been on our roadmap. Uh, in fact, we announced our partnership with City today uh, in 40 markets, and, and Russia is not one of them. Uh, so our exposure is pretty, pretty limited. We have de minimis volume within the Ukraine. Uh, however, you know we we operate in 39 countries today, and a number of those countries throughout Europe, but uh, but no exposure today. What do you see, though, as the impact of global uncertainty, rising inflation, rising gas prices, prices of jet fuel, on consumer spending? How is that impacting your outlook ahead? Yeah, there's there's a lot of pressure on consumers, uh, and consumers. Uh, pay for things, uh, whether using buy now, pay later, using Cash App, using Lydia in France, Coinbase. So, so we make money when companies or when consumers or businesses spend uh, cards at the point of sale, whether online or offline, through different modalities. It could be a physical plastic card or a tokenized card or a virtual card. Uh, they still have to buy things. So. Our exposure is really, you know, will consumers continue to use buy now, pay later? Will they continue to use on-demand delivery services or expense management services? Uh, we have a strong base of revenue. We ended the year at $517 million in net revenue. Uh, and uh, we have that strong base of, uh, of customers. And let's see if uh, they continue to spend despite all of the headwinds for them. I'm curious what you observed when it came to spending in the fourth quarter and how that is shaping your thoughts on the outlook. Obviously, you know, we're, we're hopefully coming out of a pandemic, but now, you know, what's going on in Ukraine has cast a whole nother cloud of uncertainty over the future. Yeah, there is a lot of uncertainty. Uh, the fourth quarter, buy now, pay later, really uh, was well beyond our expectations. It was 50% uh, growth from even the, the Q3, uh, which we would kind of expect because we see consumers wanting to use new payment types like buy now, pay later uh, in, the, in the fourth quarter. Uh, we actually did a survey last year of surveying people in both the US, UK, and Australia, and we found that 51% of people had actually used uh, the payment modality before. Uh, we, we don't know if it's going to change. I mean, you're you're seeing a lot of the same things, you know, unfold every minute of every day uh, in regards to Ukraine and the war. Uh, also, what's happening in Europe. Uh, we're heading into a lot of uncertainty, especially this summer. Uh, but again, we have this, this strong base of revenue, a strong base of customers, uh, who are looking to grow their businesses uh, using our technology and our tools. Uh, we're going to help them go into even more and more geographies, and we're excited about doing that. But again, there's, there's a lot of headwinds for not only consumers, but businesses as well. This new Citigroup partnership, how much could this impact revenue? So as we focused as a company, so our strategy was to start with commerce disruptors, uh, companies like DoorDash and Instacart and Affirm and Klarna. Uh, that's where we had the DNA match with developers who were building on top of our platform. We then went into large tech giants, digital banks, and then large financial institutions. They're very slow. Uh, to make decisions and, and roll out. Uh, we would expect over time, they would take more and more advantage of our platform. But this is just our foot in the door. Uh, tokenization as a service is something we are doing with JP Morgan today. Uh, now we've announced with City within 40 markets. 
And that takes time to go build. But again, this is a foot in the door. We want to do more and more with large financial institutions uh, and building that trust through us working with them directly and our technology is going to help us go and do that. Well, speaking of a foot in the door, how are you looking at Web3 and how do you see that driving growth in your business? Well, we have been doing a lot in crypto, as we've talked about in the past, especially with our partnership with Coinbase. Um, that's really our first step. Um, this idea of decentralized finance or DeFi or, you know, for years I've been talking to companies about using things like blockchain to move transactions. And I, I actually talked about this in, in my remarks I just made uh, in our, our uh, Q4 of 21 earnings call. Visa and MasterCard have interconnected the world for companies, whether online or offline, that want to accept payment cards. Um, that is very, very significant. That's a very, very deep moat and a very tall wall for companies that want to go in and build that cross-border capability that they have. So I think this technology is, is here to stay. Uh, we believe in it. I believe in it personally. I spent a lot of time with companies uh, in the crypto Web3 space, a decentralized finance, how we're going to go and build it. It's just going right. to take time. Uh, and then that could be, you know, maybe a, a decade from now, we'll see the changes. Jason Gardner, founder and CEO of Marketa. Thank you, as always, for stopping by and getting off that call. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Thursday, we're going to speak to Flexport CEO Ryan Peterson as his company partners with international aid agencies to deliver critical supplies to refugees fleeing Ukraine. You don't want to miss it. This is Bloomberg. Audio Jungle. Audio Jungle. semi-final. Meanwhile, Diamond Battles going behind, and yes, count that trifecta. 51 points, their lowest point total of the season, but again, it's the defense. That's what's predicating so much of the success for this group, and when you can finish it off with buckets like that from yeah. Diamond Battles, you've got to feel good about your chances. And the Mustangs just looking to break through on the scoreboard. And there it is. 
as Kayla White gets him on the board. She's a double-digit scorer, averaging 13 a game. Make sure you box out, especially a player like Destiny Thomas. She lives on the offensive glass. That one rattles home for Kayla White. In diamond battles in this ball game, Brooke, and good chance out of the break for SMU. That's tough because it's that tells you still the intimidation factor that UCF has. Even when they're not guarding you, you feel guarded. Lewis launches for three. Yes. It's not a great place to take the ball as the shot clock's running down. And the pass over just before the buzzer and Meritans count it. Shot. Into Kaba. And Kaba turns around and gets the favorable bounce. They count the bucket and then a whistle. Looking up ahead oh. and great way as Diamond Battles loves it. It was Battles and it finished off with Kaba hitting their stride at yeah. the right time and they could very well make a good run in the NCAA tournament. No doubt, no doubt. I think they, you know, they want to try to get second round, Sweet 16. You know, this is a team that's hype, experienced, ready to go. You know, she's not a player, I don't think I've ever even seen her attempt to talk trash. She just speaks in her game. <laughs> she gives it's space. Yeah. She gives space. Exactly. <laughs> this one and still really locked in and focused despite the big lead. Nice no-look again. That's the second time we've seen that from Alicia Lewis. I think seven games have already been played here from Dickey's Arena, and Layla Blair has already racked up 45 points in the two games. And they have held SMU to just 28 points and a convincing and dominating win for the top-seeded UCF Knights. Audio Jungle. Goes cookbook and speakeasy with Chef Justice Putnam. Netroutsradio.com. Je voudrais du soleil vert, des dentelles et des théères, des photos de bord de mer, de manger d'un Je voudrais de la lumière, comme en Nouvelle-Angleterre, 
Je veux changer d'atmosphère Dans mon jardin d'hiver Ma robe à fleurs Sous la pluie de novembre Tes mains qui coupent Je n'en peux plus de t'attendre Andrei Kazurev was Russian foreign minister from 1991 to 1996 under President Yeltsin, the first person to serve in that role in that post-Soviet era. He's also been credited with developing Russia's foreign policy in that period, as we were just discussing tonight, after the fall of the Soviet Union and the wall. We should also note the current foreign minister, a name you've probably heard, Sergei Lavrov, served as his deputy. Kozarev left the Russian government in 2000. That was the year Putin became president for the first time. And he has emerged as something of a critic of Putin and some of these measures. Mr. Minister, thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank uh, you. That statement you made, first reported by The New York Times, seems to combine the evidence that Russia's military is hitting problems with your insight or observation that those are exactly the kind of problems that may have been underreported internally to Putin. Um, can you expound on that a bit more and explain to us how you came to that view? Well, it's uh, any a dictator or any authoritarian, uh, they suffer from the same problem, that they surround themselves with good uh, liquor, so to say, or yes men, and those yes men they uh, are afraid just to, to report. And I met with those uh, circumstances when I was foreign minister, for instance, in Iraq, Saddam Hussein, or in many other places. And in the Soviet Union, it was like that. I, I served in the Soviet foreign ministry. I am Korean diplomat. And that was exactly like that. Nobody reported the truth. So, uh, he probably believed that there is no Ukrainian nation and that he has overwhelming uh, power, you know, overwhelming army, which cannot be because uh, look at the situation in Russia and the Russian economy. The Russian economy is, uh, has been stagnated for the last 10 years, if not declining. And the corruption is overwhelming inside Russia. So how could the military be totally separate from that? There could not be mm. a military like United States, you know, in a corrupt state. So it's just uh, nothing, uh, you know, not, not a rocket science to know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you put it like that, that it's, you say not rocket science, a, a common phrase that... Uh, if everything else is in decline, why would the military be an exception? And if crony capitalism and oligarchs and cronyism is how part of the economy uh, and the society runs, why would the military be accept, exempt from that? I want to play a little bit of Putin. This was in an older interview. This is before the invasion, um, but goes to the mindset that you may understand. Um, this was with our own NBC colleague, Keir Simmons, where he tries to make the argument 
um, that really he has to respond to NATO, uh, that Russia is constantly on defense, as he puts it. Take a look. What was the point of expanding NATO to the east and bringing this infrastructure to our borders? And all of this before saying that we're the ones who have been acting aggressively? Why? On what basis? Did Russia, after the USSR collapsed, present any threat to the United States or European countries? We voluntarily withdrew our troops from Eastern Europe. And what did we get in response? We got in response infrastructure next to our borders. And now you're saying that we're threatening to somebody. You're an expert uh, at getting to the root of things, not taking it all at face value. Uh, can you share with us your view from your time there? Uh, does he in any way believe some of this stuff because he's closed off, as you described? Or when you get to these international issues, is it still his version of propaganda, baiting what in America they sometimes call trolling uh, and constantly making it out as if uh, he must respond because of what the West is doing? It's both. It's not or, but it's one and the other. Uh, it's his con uh, conviction, but it's conviction of convenience because he needs a foreign enemy to uh, justify in, in some way this disastrous uh, economy in Russia, which is one of the richest countries. Uh, if you look at the mineral resources, oil, gas, I mean, gold, everything. And uh, the population, population is uh, educated and able to, to do um, complex uh, jobs. So uh, this disastrous results in Russian underdevelopment that's something which needs uh, an excuse. Uh, and that excuse they find in NATO. NATO never threatened a new Russia. NATO countries are eligible for Russian oligarchs and <laughs> for Russian successful people, I mean, uh, people who have uh, some means uh, to go. That's where they go. They don't go to Iran. They don't go to China right. even take to America right. to to NATO countries. So uh, it's all a, a wrong conviction of convenience, and it's of course propaganda, and that makes a vicious circle. You know, propaganda comes to him back uh, in reports of his uh, uh, acolytes, and then they reproduce it again yeah. as propaganda. And uh, he is in a um, echo chamber. But what I want to say also that I don't know why everybody is so fixated on Putin. I mean, it's like a spoiled child. Or today he is in good mood, tomorrow he is in bad mood. And what is mm. his um, uh, next caprice is? Uh, forget it. It's just politics. It's just intergovernment politics. And yeah. Uh, if NATO shows more strength, uh, it's okay that, that there is a response, but don't hesitate to, to make more uh, responses. He does not hesitate to punch Ukraine or to attack sure. NATO verbally or whatever. 
So right. the same is on the other side. It, it, it's, uh, it's just ridiculous that everybody is looking, oh, oh, oh what if, if, if he will be offended? Or what if he uh, will right. be nervous? Well, you're speaking, yeah, you're speaking to... The, uh, the yeah. impact he has, and you, you mentioned the propaganda. I, I've got a little bit of time left, but, you know, you say the propaganda can be a vicious loop for them. You know, was it Absolutely. not Bakunin? Was it not Bakunin who said, don't get high on your own supply or maybe somebody <laughs> else? But that's how we put it in the United States. My question mm-hmm. to you before I lose you in 30 seconds is, is there anyone inside the Russian government who can even give him the bad news? I'm not talking about overthrowing him. But give him bad news to course correct, or that's, in your view, out of line, not going to happen? That is less possible than overthrow him. That's a Russian tradition. They, they uh, fear to tell the boss the truth, but one day they might come with a uh, weapon and escort him uh, either to the grave or to re, um, retirement like happened even in the Soviet Union. So <laughs> it's rather they will escort him out than tell him the truth. That, that's that's the tradition. Well, thank you for enlightening us on some of the traditions. Uh, the former Russian foreign minister and recent Putin critic Andrei Kozarov. It is Thursday. The 10th of March of 2022, and you are in West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. I am your chef de cuisine, Justice Putnam. Gunner, the English Bulldog, is our snoozing sous chef. And our daily special is Metro Shrimp and Grits Thursdays, a little bit of jambalaya, a little bit of spice in your life. Yeah, it's getting spicy. It's getting hot. Lavrov said uh, when asked, uh, is, there a, is there a possibility of a nuclear war? And, 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 and he looked at them with his cold, steely eyes and said, I, I don't think so. Which means, yeah, it's a distinct possibility. Because when Lavrov says something, he's lying. All right. Doesn't think so. He knows so. Don't trust that guy. Oh, here's another question I have. If Lavrov and Kislyak can do the Russian sword dance in the Oval Office with Trump, how come nobody from Soros' group has high-fived Joe at the Resolute Desk? How come? All right. I guess both parties are not the same then, after all, are they? Our great vice president is uh, in the theater now. Uh, looks like... Uh, getting some material and armaments to Poland and some of the other nations nearby. I suppose that could start start World War III as we define it. And I guess that means, uh, I don't know. What does that mean? Only if we are involved, then it raises to that? Well, I guess so. But uh, we're trying to stave off that because once that happens, yeah, it's not going to be good. It is just not. Now I'm hearing that we've gotten rid of all of our tactical nukes. I don't believe that. Are you kidding me? Jesus. You mean the nation that wouldn't uh, uh, get out of like, uh, well, we're not going to use chemical weapons in war treaties. You know, we're not signatories to that. 
<laughs> we got rid of all of our tactical nukes. That's what we would like people to believe. And I think that's actually what is going on here because I heard that. Uh, the reason that we're, uh, you know, laying back off of uh, Vlad's threats of his nukes, which are tactical, is because we don't have any. We got rid of them because of the SALT Treaty. <laughs> give me a break. Actually, there was only a number that we had to give up. I, we still have some. And uh, some newer generations of them also. You can rest assured. You don't think all of those earthquakes were caused by fracking, do you? <laughs> I don't know. Am I starting a conspiracy theory? Possibly. Maybe we'll call our group Jay, because that's the kind of ego I have. All right. Well, the kind of ego I have also is has enough critical thinking skills that <laughs> do, would I want me running the show? Uh, you know, would I want me teaching your kids? You know, sometimes decisions have to be made. And they were. <laughs> Actually, the question wasn't so much what I want me teaching your kids. It's really what the question was, do I really want to put up with a bunch of dimwit parents and even more dimwitted uh, administrators who only have education degrees, by the way? Come on. If you're going to be in education, I think you need more than just an education degree. How about something in a subject? That's another pet peeve that uh, probably I acquired from my dad. Academic he be. And that is, um, you know, you ought to have a degree in whatever it is you're teaching. Wouldn't that be nice? Okay. Now parents that barely got out of high school think they can teach their kids the three R's. And that's about all it's going to be and hardly that. Okay. If we want to turn out like Russia is right now with how many 144 million brainwashed citizens for the most part? Oh, well, you know, yeah, my kid just died in Ukraine, but it wasn't from the, any war or anything. We're not there. I mean, people see it right with their very eyes from their loved ones, and they're still denying it. And people are, are arguing in scientific circles whether brainwashing works. You got proof. We have proof. 73 million in the United States, at least, seem to have uh, succumbed to the same origination of this brainwashing for a distinct purpose. Yep. Okay, well, poor Vlad. Now, when he reconstitutes his former Soviet Union, you know it's not going to be commie. It's not going to be socialist. It's going to be mob. It's going to be paying tribute to the mob boss. Mm -hmm. Except, don't any of these mob bosses know that you know your, your time on this earth is uh, really quite uh, limited? Uh, in the great scheme of things of how the cosmos works, okay? Not even a blink of an eye. So, uh, what kind of longevity of tribute do you think you're going to get? Do you think it's going to come to you in the, I don't know, whatever it is that the KGB thinks is the afterworld? Oh, I forgot. Vladimir Putin has adopted the Russian Orthodox belief system. Okay. I think it's just a convenient vehicle in which to get what he wants. 
But who knows? Maybe he's a devout Russian Orthodox guy. Russian patriarch there in Moscow said that the reason they had to invade Ukraine is because of, uh, you know, this liberal West, secular West. And uh, there was really a great fear of gay parades. He came out and said, we, we, we don't want any gay parades around here. That's why we had to uh, invade Ukraine. I don't know. I looked at old Metropolitan uh, Ivan or whatever his, <laughs> whatever his, his nomenclature is. And uh, as I specified on social media, I am a baptized Roman Catholic. And I, I so they fear gay parades and I'm thinking I'm baptized as a Roman Catholic. And what do the Russian Orthodox Church, what does the Russian Orthodox Church call their procession to the altar? Jeez. Must be something very different. I thought that all sort of originated uh, from the same sort of, you know, yeah. And then splintered over time. Well, Metropolitan Ivan, I gotta tell you, you don't have to fear gay parades. I think you probably ought to fear something a little bit I don't know, a little bit more dangerous, like uh, Petticoat Junction. Wait until you get that. You think you're dumbing down your population? Yeah, we have great practice at it here. Mm-hmm. Car 54, where are you? Even the ghost in Mrs. Muir was, I don't know, keeping us from really acquiring the critical thinking skills that we need or should be required to have to <laughs> sustain this representative democracy in this sea of turmoil. Mm -hmm. We got some catching up to do, I guess. So where I think our efforts should be put is making sure that more schools are built in rural areas, not less. And if you want to homeschool your kid, do it like we did when I was growing up. We were homeschooled every day we came home from school. We had more homework to do. And then the chores, too. Jeez. Kim Kardashian came out and said that during Women's Month, right? Women's History Month, that, uh, you know, that, that there would be more women entrepreneurs if women got up off their, uh, if women got up off their ass and worked. What? Okay. Easy for you to say, lady. Showing up at your boutique uh, from family money at about one o'clock. Yeah, you know all about working. Okay. So, <laughs> a far-flung tangent, uh, barely enunciated. It's still the morning, and I'm on my, uh, well, my minimum requirement of this caffeinated beverage. You do know that caffeine is a nutrient that our body lacks, and there is a minimum daily requirement. Yeah, just to achieve balance. And I haven't quite achieved the balance I am required to have in this time of turmoil. So uh, we'll, we'll catch up. But uh, did you know, I'm sure that you suspect, <laughs> that we have a curated show for you today. Yes, we do.
<laughs> and there's so much news out there, and I could riff on and on and on, but maybe, just maybe, we should uh, settle down and have a little bit of, I don't know, tranquil order. It's always nice instead of dealing with the chaos as it, as it all comes in. But, you know, if you have a curated uh, behavior, <laughs> I don't know where this is coming from, but I'll just follow me, okay? If you have a curated behavior system, uh, when surprises occur, you might be prepared. You just might. Well, with that stated... At the top, yeah, Putin will be overthrown before anyone gives him bad news about Russian setbacks in Ukraine because that's how it works in Russia. And when that former foreign minister mentioned that, I was once again reminded of my uh, academic advisor at Portland State way back in the day, Dmitry Dimitrishin, who was a Russian emigre from the former Soviet Union. And I got to tell you, in my day, I don't know what everybody is, you know, why everybody is fearing about immigrants coming to America. About 99.99999% of all immigrants vote Republican. Like any uh, convert, they always go for the most conservative extreme. And then they learn, like, oh man, I got to modify this behavior. It might take a generation or two, but it happens. So maybe that's what the repugs are afraid of the kids. Uh, so I was reminded uh, of the same lessons that we had from uh, Professor Dimitrishin about the Russian mindset. It is quite peculiar, prone to conspiracy theories and wild hair ideas about what is happening, which is a conspiracy theory. So, um, and his lesson I should mention is be wary <laughs> when confronting that because you need to factor in that mindset that is peculiar to that part of the Slavic world, just saying. According to Demetrician, and uh, I don't know, there's some anecdotal evidence over the decades that proves his uh, uh, premise to be true. Lived experiences, they say. So when the Russian foreign minister said, uh, you know, look, there's a reason we got 144 million brainwashed people. This uh, brainwashing has been going on for decades. One of the reasons that guy got out in 2000 as Putin was uh, was rising. I think he knew well aware who Putin was. In Yeltsin's group, Putin being KGB. So, yeah, when you're when you're living under, you know, that sort of system, yeah, you tend to look look over your shoulder quite often, and that's what they do. So, yeah, they'll 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 have to they'll have to like overthrow them rather than give them the bad news because you don't give the boss any bad news. All right. Well, different way of doing business, I would say. Different. On the rest of the menu, in the Bistro Cafe of West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy, as we begin on this fabulous Metro Shrimp and Grist Thursdays, 173 GOP lawmakers tried to send Congress home instead of voting on Ukraine. 
So I would be looking uh, into the bank accounts of a hundred and or yeah, a hundred and seventy three GOP lawmakers and see how many uh, uh, rubles are not able to exchange at this moment. Yeah, let's find out. Over 27,000 mail ballots were rejected in the Texas primary, vastly surpassing the number of rejected ballots in all previous Texas elections combined. Can you? Wow. And in another reversal of a Trump administration policy, the Biden administration is restoring California's authority to set its own tailpipe pollution standards for automobiles and trucks. After the break, we move to the chef's table where the Ukrainian government is preparing to move its sensitive data and servers abroad if Russia's invading forces push deeper into the country. And UNICEF reported more than one million children have fled Ukraine since the start of the Russian invasion 15 days ago. All that and more on West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. Bon Appetit. Radio.com. To the right of the page is the chat room link, and the chat room is monitored by Kelly Lincoln. Thank you, Kelly. To the left of the chat room link across the page uh, near the bottom there at netrootsradio.com is the link to our Patreon site. And if you could become a recurring Patreon of Netroots Radio, and if you could afford to send us what you might spend on, well, how about an espresso-type coffee drink? If you could send those funds to us once a month, uh, that allows us to pool that money with what we pull out of our own wallets and pay our bills, fly under the radar, continue this powerhouse of resistance against uh, not only the United States of America by dark forces arrayed against such, but also a representative democracy worldwide. Those dark forces, and we know who they are don't like it and we know why but thank you uh for your generosity it's allowed us to fulfill our civic duties as the founders originally intended and thank you very much for allowing us to do so you can follow netroots radio on twitter at netroots radio tom takes care of that and thank you tom follow me on twitter at justice putnam and i'll tell you why I post the show notes and links diary there uh, in which the the real reportage is contained. And I uh, post that about 10 minutes before showtime and then get that linked up on Twitter and other social media platforms. So I do that there at Justice Putnam on Twitter because you could also follow the show on Twitter at uh, Cookbook West. 
but I don't post there as often because, well, we'll get into that at another time. But anyway, you could follow the show at Cookbook West, and you can also, most importantly, pick up podcasts by way of Spreaker, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeart, YouTube, iTunes, etc., 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 and the deep archives of the Netroots Radio Radio Library, including, uh, yeah, West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy, can be found at the Internet Archive at archive.org. Alrighty, this first offering in the Bistro Cafe part of West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy comes our way by the American Independent by Emily Singer. 173 House Republicans yesterday, Wednesday, voted to send the entire chamber home rather than conduct important business, including whether to fund the government, provide billions in aid to war-torn Ukraine, or ban oil imports from Russia. Uh Uh-huh. How much NRA money did they get? And we know where the NRA got their money. House Democrats thwarted the GOP-led effort as 34 Republicans joined the Democratic majority to defeat the motion to adjourn. The motion, which Representative Jody Heiss, repug of Georgia, requested, was defeated by a 255 to 173 vote margin. The House's vote to set uh, is set to vote on a set of critical legislations, a legislation including an omnibus bill that would fund the federal government before the current funding bill expires tomorrow at midnight, Friday. If a new funding bill is not passed by then, the government shuts down. Paul J. Weber and Acacia Coronado of the Associated Press bring us this next offering here in the Bistro Cafe of West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy, Metro Shrimp and Grits Thursdays. More than 27,000 mail ballots in Texas were flagged for rejection in the first test of new voting restrictions enacted across the U.S., jeopardizing votes cast by Democrats and Republicans alike and in counties big and small according to an an analysis by the Associated Press. It puts the rate of rejected mail ballots in Texas on track to significantly surpass previous elections. The preliminary figures reported by Texas counties after votes were counted in the state's March 1 primary is the fullest picture to date of how new election rules rushed into place by Republicans following the 2020 election made it harder for thousands of voters in both parties. Some will wind up not having their ballots count at all. And that was a feature, not a bug. Rejected mail ballots are relatively uncommon in a typical election, but the initial rejection rate among male voters in the Texas primary was roughly 17 percent, 
across 120 counties, according to county-by-county figures obtained by the AP. Those counties accounted for the vast majority of the nearly 3 million voters in Texas's first-in-the-nation primary. Although the final number of discounted ballots will be lower, the early numbers suggest Texas's rejection rate will far exceed the 2020 general election when federal data showed that less than 1% of mail ballots statewide were rejected. For now, the numbers do not represent how many Texas ballots were effectively thrown out. Voters had until Monday to fix rejected mail ballots, which in most cases meant providing identification that is now required under a sweeping law signed last fall by Republican Governor Greg Abbott. New requirements include listing an identification number, either a driver's license or a social security number, on the ballot's carrier envelope. That number must match the county records. You know, the one that was put on there when you were uh, 21 and now you're 80. Okay, just saying. County election officials say they worked feverishly to contact those voters in time in many cases successfully, in a full and final tally of rejected ballots in Texas is expected to come into focus in the coming days. What's coming into focus is that they want to keep people from voting because when you have an autocracy, who needs a democracy? Press brings us this final offering here in the Bistro Cafe of West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. The Biden administration is restoring California's authority to set its own tailpipe pollution standards for cars, reversing a Trump administration policy, and likely ushering in stricter emission standards for new passenger vehicles nationwide. And a, pra- a waiver approved Wednesday by the EPA allows California to set tough emission rules for cars and SUVs and impose mandates for so-called zero-emission vehicles that do not contribute to global warming. At least 15 states and the District of Columbia have signed on to California's vehicle standards, which are stricter than federal rules and designed to address the state's severe air pollution problems. According to the American Lung Association, seven of the 10 U.S. cities with worst ozone pollution are in California, along with six of the 10 most polluted cities measured by year-round particle pollution.
Former President Donald Trump's 2019 decision to revoke California's authority to set its own limits on auto emissions was one of his most high-profile actions to roll back environmental rules he considered overly burdensome on business. Regulation of vehicle emissions is central to combating climate change. President Joe Biden has made slowing climate change a top priority of his administration and has pledged to cut greenhouse gas emissions in half by 2030. Transportation is the single largest source of planet-warming greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S., making up 29% of all emissions. Well, let us now get to our break, and when we get back from that break, we will go through weather from around the world, and we will finish up with the stories that we've curated for you today. You are listening to West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. And we will be right back. You are listening to NetworksRadio.com. Please hang up and try again. From a point at sea to the circles of your mind, a new force is at work for planetary transformation. New radio for a new earth. This is Scientific American's 60-Second Science. I'm Christopher Intagliata. Chimpanzees can make tools, they display emotions, and they can outfox humans at certain memory games. But chimps also resemble us in another way. They use medicine. They're known to eat tough leaves and bitter plants to purge parasites from their guts. Now researchers have observed chimps applying a never-before-seen type of treatment. They snatch up flying insects and apply them to their wounds. You can see this happening in a video they filmed at Luongo National Park in Central Africa. Susie is sitting up, and then she's catching something from underneath a bush. She's putting it between her lips. She seems to press it, and then she's grabbing the foot of her son with a wound, and then she is applying the insect onto that wound. Simona Pica is a cognitive biologist at the University of Osnabrück in Germany, part of the team that studies these chimps. She says it's possible that insects have antibacterial or soothing qualities, but this could also be a cultural practice with no medical benefit at all. Maybe an individual just found out that it's intriguing, then I get a lot of intention, others come, maybe then I get some grooming. And so um, it just resulted into a social behavior. After all, Pika points out that humans perform plenty of rituals with no obvious function. Her team reported their findings in the journal Current Biology. And they write that this could be an example of what's called pro-social behavior. They help each other, and it's not just the mother helping her offspring, and it's not somebody helping somebody to increase their genetic benefits, but it's also individuals who are not related with each other. As for the insects, the team has not yet identified any remains. Because it's probably very, very tiny pieces, and we are primatologists, but now we talk to entomologists And now we have an idea of how to find even smallest remains. And then there are also techniques to then identify the species. If they do, they'll be able to learn more about what function this practice might have, if any. And perhaps we humans will be able to learn some medicinal tricks from our primate cousins. Thanks for listening. For Scientific American's 60 Second Science, I'm Christopher Intagliata. This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. 
As the days get longer and the weather warms, people of all ages will start to spring into action. Spring is a great time to breathe fresh air, stretch your arms and legs, and get physically active outdoors. Lack of physical activity contributes to obesity, heart disease, stroke, and other chronic health conditions. Fortunately, many communities are making it easier and safer to be physically active. Neighborhoods across the country are working together to create more public spaces for walking, running, biking, and other physical activities. Adults should get at least 150 minutes of physical activity each week, and children should get 60 minutes a day. If you find it hard to walk to a local recreation center, park, or playground, learn how to make your neighborhood a place that makes healthy living easier. Visit makinghealthesier.org for information about ways communities can change to get more people outside and moving. For the most accurate health information, visit www.cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO. This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Welcome to A Cup of Health with CDC, a weekly feature of the MMWR, the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. I'm your host, Dr. Kathleen Dooling. From a very young age, we're encouraged to eat fruits and vegetables. Unfortunately, many Americans are not getting the message. Dr. Sung Hee Lee Kwan is with CDC's National Center for Chronic Disease Prevention and Health Promotion. She's joining us today to discuss the importance of eating enough fruits and vegetables. Welcome to the show, Sung Hee. Thank you for having me. Sung Hee, what is the recommended amount of fruits and vegetables? The federal guidelines recommend that adults consume at least one and a half cups to two cups of fruit and two to three cups of vegetables each day. This is for adults who get less than 30 minutes of physical activity a day. Adults who are more physically active need more calories and thus should be eating more fruits and vegetables. One cup is about 12 strawberries or one large tomato. How many people consume the recommended amount of fruits and vegetables? We found that very few adults are getting enough fruits and vegetables. Just 12% are eating the recommended amount of fruits, and less than 1 in 10 eat enough vegetables. And consumption is lower among men, young adults, and adults living in poverty. Why is eating a diet rich in fruits and vegetables so important? Eating a diet rich in fruits and vegetables can help with three things. One, it can reduce the risk of many leading causes of illness and deaths, such as heart disease, type 2 diabetes, some cancers, and even obesity. It can also add important nutrients that are commonly missing in Americans' diet. And it can help with weight management if adults consume fruits and vegetables instead of other calorie-dense foods. How can we meet the recommended daily intake of fruits and vegetables? Try to fill half of your plate with fruits or vegetables at each meal or every eating occasion. Making fruits and vegetables the focal point of your meal will help you meet your recommendations. For example, recent studies have shown that adults get most of their fruit during breakfast and snacks. So you can try adding berries to your morning oatmeal or grab a piece of fresh fruit as an afternoon snack. For vegetables, most adults eat them at dinner, so try adding more into your lunch by adding a side salad 
or packing a snack of baby carrots or grape tomatoes. Are canned or frozen products just as good as fresh? All forms of fruits and vegetables count towards meeting the recommendations. For the most health benefits, make sure that the fruits and vegetables you consume have limited amount of salt, butter, sugar, or creamy sauces. When selecting canned fruits, choose the ones with lowest sugars. And for canned or frozen vegetables, choose those lower in sodium. Where can listeners get more information about eating a healthy diet? Listeners can go to cdc.gov/nutrition or choosemyplate.gov. Thanks, Sunghee. I've been talking today with Sunghee Lee Kwan about the importance of eating a healthy diet. Eating a diet rich in fruits and vegetables can help reduce the risk of many leading causes of illness and death, and add important nutrients to your diet. Make sure you're eating enough. Until next time, be well. This is Dr. Kathleen Dooling for a cup of health with CDC. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO. Hi, it's Tom. Could we humbly suggest your donation to netrootsradio.com? All we've got to run this 24-hour powerhouse of progressive resistance radio is what comes out of our own wallets and you. You are our biggest donor. And it doesn't take much, $3, $5. Just go to the bottom of our netrootsradio.com page and hit our secure donate button. Heck, you can even make a recurring contribution. So donate what you'd like at the bottom of our netrootsradio.com's homepage. Because you are our biggest donor. Netrootsradio.com. Together, we are Resistance Radio. When Europeans first made contact with Native American tribes, they were surprised at the differences between the roles of women in their cultures and the indigenous cultures of America. For example, a Dutch minister wrote in 1644 about his contact with the Mohawks. The women are obliged to prepare the land, to mow, to plant, and to do everything. The men do nothing except hunting, fishing, and going to war against their enemies. Although it is difficult to generalize because of the great diversity among tribes, Native women contributed to the good of the community by farming, gathering food, and raising children. Some tribes were matrilineal, meaning that membership in one of the tribe's clans was determined through the woman's family. This was the case for the nations of the Haudenosaunee, or the Iroquois Confederacy of the northeastern region. In some tribes, women played an important political role, with Haudenosaunee women appointing chiefs and removing them from office if necessary. This has been 60 Second Civics, a podcast of the Center for Civic Education. I'm Mark Gage. Are you, am I, are we putting democracy at risk? I'm Bill Newman, and this is the Civil Liberties Minute. According to a recent Washington Post poll, 70% of Republicans believe that the 2020 presidential election was illegitimate. Wow. 70% of the people who identify with one of the two major political parties in America subscribe to a falsehood, a lie? How is this possible? Here's one explanation. 82% of Fox News viewers believe the election was stolen. 82%. 
For viewers of the ultra-far-right news distributors, it's closer to 100%. Many media analysts believe that those numbers result from people living in news silos, a phenomenon that happens among people of different political persuasions and personal beliefs. News silos. Many viewers and listeners turning to media that reinforces their existing opinions and ideas. Those media outlets then deliver content that over and over again reinforces those ideas. This phenomenon is dangerous. In order for facts to prevail over prevarications, we as a nation depend on ourselves, the body politic, to participate collectively in what we call a free marketplace of ideas. But as that marketplace becomes more like a series of company-owned stores, as new silos become more the norm, democracy increasingly is put at grave risk. The Civil Liberties Minute is made possible by the ACLU because freedom can't protect itself. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1941. New Yorkers woke up to find a foot of snow blanketing their city. Nearly a million New Yorkers also discovered their usual routine was going to be disrupted. At 5 a.m., the Transport Workers Union had walked off the job, calling a strike against the Fifth Avenue coach and New York City omnibus companies. The bus driver's demands included a pay increase and an eight-hour workday. Many of the company's 3,500 employees were forced to work 60 hours or more a week. Michael Quill, the TWU president, led the strike. Quill was an Irish immigrant known for his energetic union leadership. The bus companies tried to turn public opinion against the strikers. They took out ads in the New York newspapers reading, If you had to walk to work today, blame the transit workers' union. Other ads attempted to stir up anger by calling the union a communist-dominated, Moscow-directed outfit. Despite these tactics, thousands of other union workers across the city joined the bus drivers on the picket lines. Perhaps the most iconic moment of the strike came on St. Patrick's Day. The union had been denied a permit to join the city's annual parade. Undeterred, hundreds of union members donned TWU armbands and jaunty bus driver caps and marched anyway. The strike lasted for 12 days. Mayor LaGuardia sided with the company and urged the union to settle the strike. The union agreed to bring their negotiations to the New York State Mediation Board, where they won some ground on their demands, including a nine-hour workday. Labor History in Two, brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two. you for accompanying us here to the chef's table at West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. We always begin weather from around the world along the banks of the Rogue River in the Rogue River Valley of Southern Oregon on the west coast of the continental United States where it is currently 30 degrees Fahrenheit under, well, now the fog has is lifting somewhat 
and uh, but it's a bit chilly as I just mentioned at 30 degrees so as the fog lifts we'll have cloudy skies early then just partly cloudy this afternoon with highs near 60s near 60 winds light and variable and then some clouds uh, this evening will give mainly to clear skies overnight with lows around 30 winds light and variable generally sunny tomorrow despite a few afternoon clouds with highs at about 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh my, winds light and variable. Confirmed cases of coronavirus in Jackson County in southern in the southern part of Oregon. I we're we're going to take off our masks and we continue to have more infections. I'm not doing it. Two things. I'm not taking off my mask and I'm not going to get an infection. Please. We are now have increased our confirmed cases, which stands at 422,078. And our deceased have increased by a couple, I believe. Yes, a couple. And now stands at 494 dead. Not enough, apparently. Okay, well, pollen is still rated as none outside the window here in Rogue River proper. The air quality index for the Rogue River Valley region is good at 26 parts per million in the daytime. UV index is moderate at level 3. Barometric pressure is holding steady at 30.32 inches. Visibility is at about one half mile. And relative humidity is at 89%. Weather from around the world is brought to you by a crowd of crowdsourced weather stations that a crowd crowdsources from around the world. London is 60 degrees and sunny. Paris is 62 and sunny. Rome is 60 degrees and fair. Kiev is 26 degrees and fair. Kabul is 45 and partly cloudy. Hong Kong is 63 and clear. Tokyo is 47 degrees and partly cloudy. Sydney, Australia is 65 and mostly cloudy. San Francisco, California is 53 and sunny. And New York, New York is 39 degrees Fahrenheit and fair. And that is weather from around the world, brought to you by a crowd of crowdsourced weather stations that a crowd crowdsources from around the world. Raphael Satter and James Pearson of Reuters brings us this first amuse-bouche here at the chef's table at West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. The Ukrainian government is preparing for the potential need to move its data and servers abroad if Russia's invading forces push deeper into the country, a senior cybersecurity official told Reuters yesterday, Wednesday. Viktor Zora, the deputy chief of Ukraine's State Service of Special Communications and Information Protection, emphasized his department was planning for a contingency, but that it is being considered at all, suggests Ukrainians want to be ready for any Russian threat to seize sensitive government documents. We are preparing the ground, Zora said. Plan A was to protect IT infrastructure within Ukraine. Removing it to another country would only be 
a plan B or C. The move could only happen after regulatory changes approved by Ukrainian lawmakers, Zora said. Government officials have already been shipping equipment and backups to more secure areas of Ukraine beyond the reach of Russian forces. Last month, Zora told Politico there were plans to move critical data out of the capital, Kiev, should it be threatened. But preparations for potentially moving data abroad go a step further. Je te donne ce mon amour pour la vie entière La promesse de me trouver à tes genoux Aussitôt que tu m'appelles, rester toujours fidèle C'est tout, c'est tout Je te donne tous mes printemps, mes étés de mer Mais autant quand les feuilles tombent partout Si ce n'est pas une bonne affaire Je te donne tous mes hivers Reuters staff bring us this final amuse-bouche here at the chef's table at West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy, Metro Shrimp and Grits Thursdays. More than one million children have fled Ukraine to neighboring countries in the less than two weeks since Russia started its invasion of Ukraine, UNICEF said yesterday, Wednesday. At least 37 children had been killed and 50 injured, but that was before the maternity ward or maternity hospital Maternity and Children's Hospital was bombed yesterday. Russell said, and they do mention this, uh, she was horrified by the unreported attack. And Russell being the executive director, Catherine Russell of uh, UNICEF said uh, the attack on the Children's Hospital in Muripol, where officials said a Russian airstrike buried patients under rubble despite an agreed ceasefire. The bombing, which Ukraine President Zelensky called an atrocity, took place despite an agreed ceasefire to enable thousands of civilians trapped in the city to escape. A ceasefire zone is a free fire zone to that guy, Putin, so let's keep that in mind. Maripol City Council said the hospital has been hit several times by an airstrike, causing, co- causing colossal destruction. And Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said Russian forces did not fire on civilian targets, but they were dead. And we've seen the photographs and uh, they're not retouched. OK, let's make that clear. More than two million people have fled Ukraine since Russian President Putin put ordered the invasion on the 24th of February. Moscow calls its action a special military operation to disarm its neighbor and dislodge leaders it calls neo-Nazis, you know, Jewish people. Most of those who fled are women and children, as able-bodied men have been ordered by the Kiev government to stay home to fight. The war has swiftly cast Russia into economic isolation, as well as drawing almost universal international condemnation. Well, that brings us to the end of our broadcast period for the day. But you do know that Roots Radio broadcasts on, and we will meet up tomorrow for Blue Moon Spirits Fridays. So do stay tuned to Netroots Radio all day and all night for all the breaking news as it breaks. And we will meet up here tomorrow. 
right here in West Coast Cookbook and Speakeasy. Bon appetit. Je voudrais du soleil vert, des dentelles et des théères, des photos de bord de mer, dans mon jardin d'hiver. Je voudrais de la lumière, comme en Nouvelle-Angleterre. Je veux changer d'atmosphère, dans mon jardin d'hiver. Du frais d'Astère, revoir un latte coère. Je voudrais toujours te plaire dans mon jardin d'hiver. Je veux déjeuner par terre, comme au long de golfe clair. T'embrasser les yeux ouverts dans mon jardin d'hiver. Out, you need to recover, and Smoothie King always has you covered with the Activator Recovery line of smoothies. High protein and low fat to help build lean muscle and support your overall strength training program. The Activator Recovery Smoothies from Smoothie King rule the day. Okay, so I have a hot take. I believe the 2008 film Penelope, which stars James McAvoy and Christina Ricci in the title role, um is less of a romantic comedy in the sense that we know romantic comedies to be 
and more of a coming-of-age story slash a fat liberation story. Mainly I want to focus on the fact that I believe that Penelope is a fat liberation story. And it's not just because the story is the story because she is a person who is born with the face of a pig and a lot of people call fat people pigs. That's, that is a cheap shot and that's not actually where I'm going with this. Like the entire story from beginning to end, if you had just made Penelope a person who existed in a bigger body because of the family curse or because one side of the family just had a bigger body, it would still be the same story. It would just be, like, not sci-fi, I guess. Anyway, let's talk about it. just like to state a few things for the record before we begin. One, Penelope, though I love this movie very much down to the very core of my soul, is an extremely white movie. It is. It's it's so white it's blinding. That's one. Two, and also considering what I said in the beginning, there are very few fat people in Penelope. Like, again, yes, I understand what I said, and I stand by that, and I will explain my position. Just, if you're going to watch the movie, just know that you're looking at this movie as a piece of art, and you are reading into the message in the movie. Not, you're, you're not, don't look at the aesthetics, because if you just focus on that, then everything I said was a lie, and you'd be right to be angry with me. But I'm telling you now. It is a super white movie and a super slim movie, aesthetically speaking. Now, let's talk about the context. Now, for starters, I think it's best to sort of get a grip on the dynamics at hand so that we could more easily follow the story. Um, so, the story starts with the Wilherns. Um, the Wilhern family is a blue blood family. Uh... In this iteration, it consists of Jessica, Franklin, and Penelope. Penelope's our title character. She's the girl who was born with the face of a pig, and her parents pretty much did everything they could to try to remove it. Okay, let me clarify. When I say that she was born with the face of a pig, she, honestly, the only thing she has is a pig snout. Just her nose. Her nose is the different thing on her face. Uh, when she's born, she has, like, the same ear structure as a pig, but she also has long hair, so, like, you can't tell if she has it as an adult. She's 27 in the movie. But, like, it's- if she does, it's not noticeable. The only thing that's really different about her is the fact that she has a pig snout for her nose. That's it. That's all. Now, I don't know what- the Wilhern family did in the past for money. But if I had to guess. But, like, the whole story starts off, uh, you find out that the Wilherns, Franklin's family, are old money. Like, old money. 
uh, probably not like royal family old old money, but they it looks like the eighteen hundreds. Um, you find out early on before you even like meet Penelope properly. Uh, you find out that the Wilherns were cursed because a long time ago one of their ancestors got a servant girl pregnant and. When he told his family of his intentions to marry this woman, to make an honest woman out of her, they somehow convinced him not to do that, and she decided to take a long walk off of a short cliff. Yeah, apparently this is a kid's movie. Um, but it turns out that her mother is the town witch, and the town witch put a curse on them that until when they have a girl a Wilhern girl of their own, like a Wilhern girl in the family. When that happens, she will be born with the face face of a pig. And when that happens, the only way that her face would quote unquote return to normal is if a blue blood accepts her as their own. Now, like any good curse, this one takes a few generations to marinate. Um, there is not a Wilhern girl born for a few generations. Obviously, the very first one is Penelope, but they do have a false flag because, of course, um, this is like, this is something that you find out in the movie, but it's not really discussed in detail. Um, apparently one of her aunts had an affair and instead of having a Wilhern girl, she had a girl with her driver. So, like, this, of course, lulls the entire family into a false insecurity, like, oh, we were so silly for thinking that we, we, can actually be cursed, and then Penelope's born, and it's, it's just, like, I love how it plays off for a few reasons, chief amongst them being, they had generations to prepare for this, generations to prepare for the fact that this might happen, and they just, it never... Never occurred to them to even think to prepare themselves physically, mentally, emotionally. To once, like, the first three Wilhern boys were born, to be like, okay, so we are going to teach our children to be more empathetic because we got lucky this time. We should probably make sure that if this curse is true, make sure it doesn't last. But no, instead they were just like, eh, who cares? That's tomorrow's problem. Love that for them. And though Jessica and Franklin are both uh, described as blue blood society sweethearts, we don't know much about um, Jessica's family. We, I, Her family is not discussed at all, honestly. She seems to be like an Aphrodite sort of creature where she's just born whole cloth out of the plot and then just plopped into the story. But, like, I would, I would love to see, like, the story Bible, if I could, just to see if there is anything on her background. Because she is actually a very pivotal character in how all of this unfolds. And, of course, we're going to talk about it. So I will explain to you why I am more fascinated by Jessica and her side of the family than I am with Franklin. Franklin is sort of a non-entity in the story. He sort of just goes along to get along. There is a portion in the movie where he, like, expresses regret for being a Wilhern because of the fact that his 
daughter is born with a less than desirable facial feature. But other than that, he doesn't really add much to the story, which is a damn shame because he's played by Richard E. Grant and he he plays Franklin perfectly. But the character is just there. He's just there. Actually, that's not true now that I think about it a little bit more. Uh, Franklin is basically a buffer in his family, which is much needed because his wife is neurotic as hell. To be fair, under the circumstances, the Wilhern parents did the best that they could with the ingredients that were given to them. Unfortunately, that means that they also refused to learn anything new. So, like, they they sort of stunted Penelope to a certain degree because they didn't want to do anything different. Which is tragic because Penelope was stuck at home with her parents who basically told her that until they could quote-unquote fix her face, she would never be accepted by society. That, that's, that's the message that was drilled into her. Until we can get this one situation figured out, you would never be accepted in society. And because of that, they refused to let her go out there and like experience the world on her own. Am I jumping the gun? Yes. And Jessica, in particular, did her very best to protect her daughter from any outside degradation. She uh, brutalized a reporter, which is something that would come back to haunt her in the end. Um, She also faked Penelope's death. And then once the outside world decided that pursuing this whole Penelope front wasn't worth it, she decided to turn her daughter into the perfect bride. Jessica doesn't focus on making her daughter a fully functioning member of society, doesn't prepare her for even when she's out there having the tough skin that she will need to survive in a blue blood society, because even if Penelope wasn't born with that nose, people are cruel. She would still be torn down for whatever reason, and... Like, Jessica never prepared her for any of that. She just focused on making sure that Penelope was above reproach as a bride so that people wouldn't notice her face. And, like, the way that Jessica is played wonderfully, I might add, by the above reproach, Catherine O'Hara. The way that she's played, it's almost as if she doesn't see Penelope's face as, like, a part of her. It is just, it's a thing to get rid of. Like a zit. There is a moment um, the first time that we meet Penelope and basically all of the modern day characters um, including Edward who we will get to in a moment. Um, but there's a point where we meet all of the characters. Edward's run away. Um, oh, that's the thing. Um, probably should have mentioned this before but uh, around the time Penelope was about 20, I think, or 18, young, like late teens, early 20s, around that amorphous age. Her parents got her a matchmaker. I don't know if her dad was really in on that. I'm pretty sure it was just Jessica. 
But uh, she got a matchmaker, and the matchmaker was set to find her a groom. So, in an argument later on, I think uh, Penelope mentions that mentions that it's been about seven years since these uh, matchmaking dates have been going on. But uh, essentially, the reason this whole ordeal is going on, the reason the reason we have the movie Penelope is the fact that she has basically had men run away from her every time they see her face. Because, friendly reminder, the curse says that only a blue blood can break the curse. So they've been getting these rich, high and mighty men to come and meet their daughter and then reject her in, honestly, what must be in their corner of the world the most violent way possible. Like, these men are throwing themselves out of windows, running, screaming from their house. And this has been going on for seven years. For seven years, this has been happening. And, like, what could arguably be one of my favorite conversations? Because it's not really an argument. It's it's basically just a tit-for-tat between Jessica and Penelope. One of my favorite ones is... Honestly, right in that beginning when we get, like, basically an info dump of everything that's going on. Um, Edward has run away. Um, their butler has been tasked with getting Edward back so that he can sign an NDA to make sure that no one ever finds out that Penelope's alive, which is basically what they've done with the other guys. Um, but Penelope's walking up the stairs and Jessica's just like, why? Why, why would you show him, like, the thing? And she's like, I'm, okay, first of all. I'm not the one who ran away. And Jessica, Jessica, sweet, dear Jessica, was just like, well, of course they run when you spring yourself on them like that. Do you think I showed your father my mole when we first started dating? No. I waited, and I had the good sense to wait until after we were married. And it's at this moment that, one, we see Penelope's face, and we find out that people are overreacting. Um... It's like, yeah, people are overreacting. Um, but she throws back at her mom. I didn't show him my mole. I showed him my face. A little bit later in that conversation, well, not a little bit, like literally the next line, her mother is trying to convince her that Edward did like her despite the fact that he ran screaming from the house. And Penelope's just like, no, mom, he actually didn't. And then Jessica, like, pivots and says that he didn't, like, the problem wasn't you. The problem was your nose. And Penelope, once again, is just like, he didn't like my face because my nose is on my face. My nose is, like, a prominent feature on my face. And then Jessica tells Penelope that that's not her nose. That's her great-great-great-grandfather's nose on her father's side. That's not important. But it's it's the fact that, okay, the next line after that is Jessica essentially tells her that she's, n- that Penelope is not her nose. She is someone else just waiting to come out. And as someone who grew up fat in a larger body, I truly cannot tell you How many times I have heard that, not only in my life, but as a reason to keep going on. And I don't think people realize that 
That just makes me want to throw myself down the stairs. Like, oh, so I I need to change completely. Not, like, show people that I have a personality. I have to cut myself in half to make people comfortable. Good talk, glad we had that conversation. But, like, Pen- Jessica starts to cry at this, and Penelope's comforting her, because she's obviously been through this three million times with her mother. This is not the first guy that's run away. Definitely won't be the last, but, like... That that conversation just proved to me that Jessica does not know her daughter at all. Because the guy that Jessica is crying over now, Penelope did not care for. However, later on, she does meet a guy. Um, they believe his name is Max Campion. That's not the case. Um, the guy is played by James McAvoy. And when he leaves, Penelope is truly distraught by him just being gone and Jessica doesn't see it (laughs) like it's like and there's honestly no reason there's truly no reason that she doesn't recognize what her daughter's going through in in that moment she like Penelope uses the talking points that her mother used on her to get this guy to stay and like Immediately when he tells her that he can't, her mom takes just a second as literally her world is coming down right on her head to be like, okay, let's regroup. And she does she doesn't see it. And like, I think I think the worst part about that the scene that I'm talking about, if you ever watch this movie, you'll see it. Like, Jessica just says, I will never give up. <laughs> like, I I'll never give up, sweetheart. And Penelope is in her room just living through her heartbreak. And her mother's words, just the most prominent ones, are, I will never give up. And it's just like, okay, so you don't see that I am shattered by this. Like, we're, we're just supposed to try again tomorrow? Like, this, can can I get a week? Like, this, and it's, it is specifically because they had that conversation before but they were interrupted by by this guy showing up that it's it is hard to watch but also like very cathartic to watch if that makes any sense like if you're if you're not prepared to watch that it's hard but if you are it feels good i am terrible at explaining this but then Penelope goes on her own. She experiences the world. Uh, she covers her face so that people don't immediately know who she is. But then, like, when the scarf comes off and people know who she is, like, she's pretty well-received by the public. Like, obviously there are some detractors, but for the most part, they're outliers and cannot be counted in this survey. But then Edward comes back because he makes a few blunders in the public and his father's company is publicly traded. So, like, he can't do that. Um, And his way of making amends to his father is by proposing to Penelope, who at this point has gained some sort of confidence and, like, doesn't want to be pushed around by people anymore. But her mother, 
Jessica. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. When you need auto parts, O'ReillyAuto.com is just a few clicks away. We offer convenient options for you to get your parts quickly. Order online and pick up for free at your local O'Reilly Auto Parts store. We'll even bring it out curbside. Or you can have your parts delivered right to your door with free shipping on most orders over $35. Visit O'ReillyAuto.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Sweet, lovely Jessica is once again trying to protect her daughter from the outside world. Who will destroy her? And how does she protect her daughter? By destroying her. Essentially, Jessica distills her daughter's appearance to the wider society as them being fascinated by a talking pig. Simply a talking pig. And then she points to Edward, the guy who ran out of their house and says, this guy wants to marry you. And like, he still can't look her in the eye. But marriage, sure. Okay. Um, completing the arc of Jessica, one of the reporters who, uh, the, the reporter that she blinded, didn't blind, the reporter that she took the eye of, uh, returns to her and say, hey, this guy that your daughter was in love with, the reason he rejected her proposal was because he wasn't a blue blood and she said something that freaked him out and he didn't want to jeopardize her life. So here's the information. Take that to your daughter, see what she says. And Jessica's just like, no, she ain't be doing that. He did the right thing by denying my daughter the happiness that she might have felt. So bully for you. I'm not telling her shit. Cool. And then later on during that ceremony, it turns out that all Penelope needed, all she truly needed, was just acceptance. Because she ends up breaking the curse herself. And like, once again, the Wilhern parents did what they could with the information that was given to them to provide their daughter with a good life under the circumstances. Un. Unfortunately, they refused to learn anything beyond that. Now let's move on to the guys. Now, there are actually three men in this story that are worth mentioning. Uh, one of them is Lemon, the reporter that I mentioned before that Jessica took the eye of, and that, okay. He broke into their house trying to get a picture of Penelope, and she hit him in the face with a mortar or, like, a meat tenderizer. She hit him in the face, he lost his eye. And because of that, he has a personal vendetta against the Wilherns because he only tried to get a picture of their weird daughter, in his mind, that's what he's thinking. He only tried to get a picture, invading their privacy. I don't think he even considered that, but like, all he was trying to do was get a picture, and Jessica freaked out and beat him in the face. So he, like, every time he hears the Wilherns, like, his ears perk up. And he's, like, been waiting since, since that moment to get any sort of scoop on the Wilherns. Like, again, they sort of went underground once Penelope was born. Uh, so 
what he's he's just been waiting for a moment so when edward shows up okay going back again um edward vanderman is a blue blood he was the blue blood that i mentioned before that sort of ran off and jessica thought that he was truly the one edward is i'm pretty sure only of note because he's the only guy that didn't sign an nda so he was not bound to secrecy by the wilherns about penelope's appearance which you know in any other case wouldn't be a big deal but i i feel personally that edward was a vindictive little prick like I'm not entirely sure about the other men that she was forced to speak to, but Edward actually went to the cops with his encounter with Penelope, which, again, he just saw her face and then freaked out and ran, which, okay. But he, like, he, to the cops, he made it seem as if Penelope was going to cannibalize him on the spot if he didn't run away, which was not the case. But then a reporter happens to be at the uh, police station and hears it and he prints the story the next day. And again, um, the Vandermans are a family with a publicly traded company. They don't mention what that company is, but I don't think it's important. Um, So he is like embarrassed because he's supposed to be next in line to inherit the company. And now he looks like a crazy person because the girl that he was supposed to be marrying tried to eat him in his mind. And that's where he meets Lemon. So now these two men, not going to call them gentlemen, these two men now have like a ploy or a plan to basically one up the Wilherns. They have both been burned or embarrassed or like maligned by this family they feel so they are going to set out to ruin this girl's life for no other reason than the fact that she has a different face i can i cannot stress this enough the problem with penelope is that her face is different just she she has a different shaped nose that's it and she happens to be born into a rich family Or that sort of thing should be taken care of by now. But no, the issue is that they don't like her face. And now they're going, they're going to make her life a living hell because they don't care about the repercussions. They just want the story to get out there anyway. So they come up with a plan to get another blue blood in there, but they can't go with just any blue blood. Like, because you can't really offer these people anything, especially if they have already encountered Penelope or like they were going to like you can't convince them to get a picture of her oh yeah the plan is to get a picture of Penelope so that they can put it in the paper um so they go looking for down and out blue blood and that's where we meet the third guy um who they think is Max Campion who is another blue blood but he has basically lost his family's fortune. The guy that they actually end up picking up is not, in fact, Max Campion, a down-and-out blue blood. He is the... Turns out he's the son of a plumber. 
the character, Johnny Martin, is played by James McAvoy. Um, and the first time Johnny actually, like, talks to Penelope is by mistake. Uh, Penelope, at this point, is frustrated with the whole song and dance of, like, meeting a suitor only to have him run away from her. So she just decides that she's just going to pack the rest of the blue bloods that are left in whatever city they're in. That's another thing about this movie that I love. We don't know where the- we don't know where we are. We don't know. Like, I- my best friend and I call it, uh, New London Paris, because, like, we don't- we don't know where they were going with it. It's a pretty place, but we don't know. Anyway, she decides to pack the rest of the Blue Bloods wherever they are living into one room and just, like, scare tactics. Just, like, show everyone her face, and if they leave, they leave, and if they stay, she doubts they'll stay. So, um, she does that, but, uh, Johnny ends up staying behind because the uh, jacket that he's supposed to be getting the picture with keeps malfunctioning, so he, like, ducks behind a chair trying to fix this thing so he doesn't see why everyone else is running, and he's just, like, there. So, I really- I can't tell the timeline. I just- I don't know. But I- I think, personally, um- Johnny might have been the person who talked to her the longest. I know for a fact that he was the only person who spoke to her like a human and not like the next big check because I don't know how much these people were offering to give up Penelope, like her dowry, but it must have been a lot because everyone was coming in. But like, again, this, okay, so this is the guy that like, completely broke Penelope when he told her no. But again, everyone thinks, at this point, everyone thinks that he is Max Campion, a blue blood who's just down on his luck. So, like, this should be the easy sell. And the fact that he was just like, no, to pretty much everyone else, just signified that this might have been hopeless. Like, there might be no one. But honestly, here's what I think. Um, when it comes to Johnny Campion, uh, Max Martin, I don't know what I'm going to call him for the rest of this time. I'll probably go in between them. I'm so sorry. But, like, here's what I think. Because he just asked her, what if, what if it doesn't work? What if, what if you stay who you are and nothing changes? And Penelope was just like, then I'll kill myself. If, if we get married and my face doesn't change, then you never have to see me again. And I think that was where he was just like, yeah, I'm... Lying up until this point was cool, because, like, I was only going to get the picture and be done with it, or I was only going to get the girl and I wouldn't have to worry about any, like, anything this serious. But the fact that she was just like, yeah, no, I will end it if it doesn't work was probably where he was just like, yeah, I can't, can't let this happen. But I say that as someone who is watching the movie, because I know that that's not Max Campion. Penelope doesn't. So all she thinks is, I've gotten to know this guy, and I thought, I thought, not my mom, I thought we had something. 
and for him to just reject her outright for what seems like no reason, that had to hurt. And of course, like, that would be the time, like, that that would also probably trigger me to be like, you know what? This isn't getting any better, so I'm just, I'm gonna go. Like, they're, they are never, my parents are never going to let me out this house until my face is fixed. And my face is never getting fixed because there is no one in this world who will love me, so I should just go. I'll just go. And while she's out and about, Penelope ends up needing some money of her own, and Lemon and Edward are still looking for a picture of Penelope, so she takes one, gives it to him, and for the first time, Lemon actually sees, like, sees her face. And, okay, so the way that Edward described her, she sounds like she looks like a demon. And, like, you even see what he sees. Like, there are a few times, I think, there's, like, one one or maybe two times where, like, the demon that he imagines Penelope to be shows up and, like, you... Since you've been watching the movie, you know for a fact that that's not what she looks like. So you're looking at this and you're just like, what is... Where is your head at, Edward? Like, what? what is wrong with you? But, um... Lemon finally gets a picture of Penelope and he sees her and the first thing he says to Edward is like, fangs? Dude, they're no fangs. (laughs) And Edward's just like, well, she might have just like sucked him back in the skull. And Lemon at this point realizes that he might have created a monster in Edward. And he's like, dude, you and I both know that it's probably, you've taken this too far now. It's over. Edward is not done maligning this girl. So, uh, whenever he's with his father and the reporters ask for, like, at this point they've seen Penelope's face when they ask for commentary on the falsehoods that he's been telling or what they think, what the Vandermans think of Penelope, Edward cuts in and says that she belongs in a cage. And it's at that point he is rebuffed by both the press and his father. And it is after this point that he proposes to Penelope. Now, my thing about the proposal in itself is this. Eddie has learned nothing. He is doing this simply to save face. And even when he's confronted by Johnny, um, who he still thinks is Max Campion, he tells him that if If Johnny wants to go out there and tell Penelope that the only man willing to marry her still gags at the thought of kissing her, he should be his guest. Like, and honestly, what Eddie said is not too far off of what Jessica told Penelope when she was trying to convince her to marry him, which to me. As a fat person who identified with Penelope, even though she is not a fat person, that proved to me that there is no hate quite like a fat phobe's love. Gotta love it here. But once again, at some point, uh, Lemon, the reporter, finds out that Johnny Martin is in fact Johnny Martin and not Max Campion. 
And Max and Johnny, not Max, what the? Max and Lemon have a conversation where we find out that Lemon has basically just been chasing a vendetta at this point. Like, he does not believe in the curse. He just believes that the girl is unfortunate and that the family is just unfortunate, I guess. Like, he just, I guess he thinks that just bad hands were dealt. Because then he asks Johnny, like, we, he tells Johnny that we both know that Edward is a terrible person and Penelope does not deserve to be stuck with him for the rest of her natural born life. So then he asks Johnny why he wasn't the one to propose and Johnny had to remind him, like, the, the curse is, it has to be one of your own kind that breaks it. So, like, I wasn't qualified, and I don't think Johnny told Lemon that Penelope offered to, like, end it if it didn't work, which is a whole nother layer. And I already told you the movie ending, um, Penelope breaks the curse, uh, she gets with Johnny, they live happily ever after, but they're- but she's telling the story to her, like- I guess third grade or fourth grade class it's a class of little kids and uh they're trying to find out the moral of the story and one of the kids gives such such a sweet answer it he the kid says it's not the power of the curse it's the power you give the curse and sure that's true to an extent but here's the other way that i see it the wilhearns specifically had generations to course correct they they spent years telling their kids about this tale about their great-great-grandfather screwing up and now like they all live in fear of a girl being born in this family instead of telling that boogeyman's tale they could have spent generations raising better Wilherns, and they didn't do that. So that when this thing happened, it was as catastrophic as it was. It didn't have to be this. It Penelope lived in what she believed was a cursed body because her parents believed that she was cursed, and because children are not, like, made whole cloth to understand like the world as it is and that they have to form their own opinions they adopt the opinions of their family and her family thought that she was a burden from the very beginning because the wilherns did not spend any time trying to teach their offspring how to be better people penelope had to learn how to break the curse herself because no one knew how to do it And I say this with love because, once again, this is my favorite movie. And it is mainly my favorite movie because her story could apply to so many things. It could apply to neurodivergence. It could apply to disabilities. It could apply to fatness. The story of Penelope is a universal story if you do not fit the mold of society. And that is why I love this story so much. I suggest you watch it. I'm not even going to look at Netflix just to see that they removed it again. But seriously, if you can find it, watch it. It's a great movie. Thank you so much.
for joining me. Thank you.